The following is still a pandemic recording presented to you in Around Sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-Black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on, and what we hating on, what we might be, and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, palm trees and sunshine, one more time before the winter comes, we cover it all. This podcast is based in Oakland, California, the center of the known universe, where we are dealing with Rona and Reconstruction. It's a challenging time, a changing time. It's a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we're going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99 because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. If we can get radical about our intentions, then the way that we expend our resources will look different. Our guest this week is a leader at the intersection of culture, justice, and policy. She's the founder and principal of Love and Power Works, a full-service social impact and equity agency. She serves as the vice president of social impact at BET, is an NBC News and MSNBC analyst, and the host of Undistracted, an intersectional news and justice podcast. She's been listed as one of Time's 12 new faces of Black leadership. I'm not going to keep you in suspense anymore. Please, please, please welcome my incredible friend, Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Welcome, Brittany. Hey. Hi, 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 sis. How are you? (laughs) Oh, it's so good to have you here. We're so glad that you joined us today. I'm glad to be here. So listen, I don't know up from down anymore. I'm pretty sure we're <laughs> still in the pandemic. They keep saying, you know, now it's an endemic, but whatever, girl, we're in a panini. OK, mm-hmm. and we have been on and off quarantined for almost two years now. So yeah. I got to ask you, what has your endemic or pandemic life been like? Have you developed any unique habits live and direct from Miss Rona? Um, uh, lots of new habits, some good, some terrible for my waistline, but all of them remind me that I'm grateful to be alive because for far too many folks for, you know, over 700,000 folks, the loved ones of many people that we love, they didn't have the time to develop new habits or gather lessons from this time of solitude, um, and physical isolation because they fell to this pandemic. So, Number one, I think I've spent a whole lot more time thanking God, thanking the creator for breathing. Because when you think about people being connected to respirators because they cannot breathe on their own, when you think about people who will have labored breathing for the rest of their lives, 
because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time around the wrong person, Mm -hmm. it makes every breath precious. So I, I spent a lot of time in gratitude for that. I've spent a lot of time with my husband. We got married three or four months before the Rona, (laughs) which means that we spent a whole lot of time together as newlyweds, newlywed in quarantine, as we like to say. Yes. But it was a really actually beautiful time in that, A, it definitely cemented that we were each other's people because if we weren't, we'd be having a very different conversation right now. That's a fact. (laughs) That is a fact, fact, fact. (laughs) But I mean, I feel like we lived like three years, four years of marriage inside of 18 months, right? I mean, we were forced to communicate about things. We were forced to share space. We were forced to get intimate. We were forced to get really clear with ourselves and one another in ways that probably take more time under normal circumstances. But when you were together... 24-7, 365, you have no other option but to get real. And so I'm really grateful for that. We also spent a lot of time at 2 a.m. baking ginger cookies, which (laughs) are delicious. Yes, they are. (laughs) But um, I paid for it at the gym, we'll just say. But they were delicious. And listen, my body got me through a pandemic. So whatever size it is, I'm grateful for it. It feels like we are either on the verge of or literally have already careened off the cliff of the apocalypse. And so I got to ask, are there any new skills that Miss Rona gave you? I mean, (laughs) I remember in the beginning of this, people were like baking bread and starting sourdough and planting gardens. So what are you doing? Are you doing your own manicures? I mean, give us the scoop. I mean, it definitely feels like we in the end times, right? And I'm, I can never, I cannot be the judge of that fully, but this feels like it has been written before, mm-hmm. right? Um, the You know what? I, I did learn how to do my own nails. Yes. I feel like I opened up my own beauty shop because I had learned a lot of makeup and hair it. skills. Killing you know, it. Killing it. Thank you. When you got to get on these Zooms for TV and it's like, okay, let me pull up the latest Jackie Ina because right. otherwise <laughs> I'm going to be on here looking wild. Right. But you know what my favorite skill that I developed during Miss Rona was that I finally entered the secret society of Black women who know how to cornrow. Come on. Because for the longest time, I never knew how. And I realized that it was my nails that were getting in the way. My acrylics were literally in the way. So once I had soaked off the acrylics and was not going back to the nail salon for a while, suddenly I had time to like sit in front of the TV and watch Tiger King this was like right before people figured out how to do all the work virtually. Yeah, totally. um, I had left my job in the beginning of January. I started working for myself. I started Love and Power, as you talked about. And everything was just kind of in that mysterious pause yeah. where we didn't know when things would get restarted. And I say that with a lot of gratitude and privilege because there are lots of people whose lives never paused and they were still on the front lines of everything. But I was sitting in front of the TV watching Tiger King and I was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to do this. <laughs> And after, you know, a, a few hours and a few tries, I got them braids tight. Come on. I can do designs. I can go in different directions. Yes. I can do a circular pattern. Yes. Like, I'm really, I'm tight with it now. You're out here. And listen, like, I feel like that is a skill I will pass on generationally. As long as we're still here, I'm going to teach somebody how to cornrow. I love this. And I may be your next recruit. <laughs> but I'm not giving up my nails now, child. So we're going to have to figure something out. Because we'll have to figure These out are my we'll actual out. nails. And it's been too long. And during the pandemic, my shit was looking rough. And my nails would not grow. They were like, no, girl, no. First of all, 
can we say a huge congratulations for your new role at BET? Oh, thank you. Thank you. What's going on? Tell us a little more about it and tell us about the impact that you hope to have. It's so funny because I've actually been in this role for quite a few months now and people were like, did I miss an announcement, an article, something? And I'm like, no. (laughs) Not because there weren't plans or aren't plans. Maybe one day we will decide. But there was, I came into work that was moving forward um, into a moment that, as we both know, is critical for our people. Mm -hmm. And so I consulted with BET last year. I did a lot of background work on their Saving Ourselves COVID-19 Relief Fund. Um, There was a massive telethon. There was a a massive fundraising effort that happened for weeks. And altogether, we raised about $20 million to direct toward majority Black cities. And my job in the background was to make sure that that money really went to Black people, right? So combing the demography, figuring out what zip codes these nonprofits served, making sure that they were really grassroots organizations, and that we were meeting direct needs. So we were helping pay people's rent. We were helping pay mortgages. We were helping um, people get tested. We were helping people get health care. We were helping students get laptops and educational supplies. We're helping families get food. That's dope. Um, because that's what was necessary in that moment. And so doing that that work and some other things for them last year, after lots of conversations, I really saw a powerful opportunity to put kind of the third leg on my personal, the, the personal stool of my journey, if you will. Um, because I've been thinking much more critically about how we become our own storytellers and how we build our own tables. So I've intentionally moved a lot of my work toward media in front of the camera, behind the camera, in front of the microphone, behind the microphone. And this was kind of the third leg to that stool. So I do the work with NBC and I try to make sure that in these conversations, voices like ours are not trampled on anymore. Uh, I do the podcast and I both host and executive produce that and say, okay, we're really building our own table here instead of other people dictating to us what we can talk about, just like you're doing with Lady Don't Take No. It's we have full creative control here. And then with BET, it's about saying, how can we leverage the resources of a media company that is for and led by Black people to our maximum advantage? So it is both about the money we give away, but it's also about the content that we create. It's about the voices that we amplify. It's about the ways in which we create ripples of impact so that we equip somebody to go tell somebody to go tell somebody. Um, So we've been doing that with the creation of National Black Voter Day, um, which we literally pulled out of thin air in 2020 and have continued in 2021 um, with the Reclaim Your Vote campaign. Um, We did that with a documentary called Black and Jewish. We're working on some pieces with the community of Black trans women in particular and just trying to make sure that BET becomes and remains a place where everyone can feel at home where everyone feels seen and where people feel truly amplified and spotlighted. Mm. So I feel really fortunate to be a part of an incredible team of people working in lots of ways to make that happen. We know that the Black community is not monolithic. So, you know, there's plenty of stuff happening on the network that's not in my control, that is controlled by people who have other ideas and other creative outlets. But for my corner of that universe, I'm really excited about really making investments in our communities and understanding that our wellness and our thriving is the only return that matters. 
how did you get into social justice work? I mean, you're well known for being both a member of and a leader of the Ferguson Uprising, but you were active in social justice work prior to that. Do you come from a family that's political or did you just get politically active despite your family like other people did? Yeah, I mean, everybody's story is unique, right? I'm one of these people who like ate justice for breakfast, lunch and dinner um, because that's what was served to me. Uh, When we (laughs) sat down at the dinner table, these were the topics of conversation. My father was a pastor of uh, a large historic black church in St. Louis, my hometown. It's where Dredd and Harriet Scott worshipped once upon a time. Um, He was also a Black liberation theologian, so he was a professor of Black church Mm. history and liberation theology at two of our universities in St. Louis. And my mother is a social worker um, and an educator. And so she went on to build the first student support service system for students of color and first-generation college students at our city's largest public institution. So you really do not come from the family that Ron and Gwen created (laughs) (laughs) and not um, understand that this is the family business in some ways. I told my mom one day through, it was a very tearful conversation because I just, you know how you have those moments where you like, I didn't, I need to tell my mom I love her. I need to tell her, thank Thank you. you. (laughs) I need to tell her, I need to show her gratitude for the sacrifice and the, the, the modeling that she did. But I had literally just sat with my then fiance, now husband's grandfather, who, and we were watching a documentary that I was in. And he was talking about how growing up in the industrial Midwest and like working, the movement never reached him. And so he was like, there's stuff, he would, there was stuff he was learning in his 80s from watching this documentary. Wow. And I had this moment where I realized it could have not reached me had somebody not made the choice. So I called my mother and I was like, I just want to thank you for being so deeply intentional. And I mean, you know, Pawpaw's circumstances were not of his own making, right? So it's not like anybody or he failed in some kind of way. But I just understood a little bit better the choices that my parents had made in that moment. And so I just, I, I really, I, I thank my mother for teaching me how to do this work inside of institutions. I thank my father for teaching me how to do this work outside of institutions and for showing me the unique balance in marriage that they can have and how sometimes you got to pick one, sometimes on. you got to pick the other, and often you got to pick the outside and that that's okay too. Mm. But yeah, this was the family business. This was the family training ground. And I am grateful every day that I got a lot of early lessons One of those lessons being to remain curious, right? Mm. Because there's still so much more that I'm learning, so many ways in which my my own politic is evolving beyond where it was as, you know, I was as I was kind of a pupil of my parents. But I feel really grateful that this is this is family tradition. Well, let me ask you this, Brittany, because I'm grateful for it, too, obviously, and I'm grateful for your contributions. And I think one of the poignant memories that I have from the Ferguson uprising in particular, was being gathered at St. John the Baptist mm-hmm. um, under the leadership of Reverend Starsky, who is now Starsky. head honcho over here at the Children's Defense Fund. And I remember being in that in the sanctuary with a full house of Black folks from all over the country. Yeah. And people approaching the altar, right, and crying because they had been excluded and in a lot of ways excommunicated from 
um, a place that is supposed to bring us that liberation thesis, right? A place that is supposed to liberate our spirits as well as our minds, our hearts, and our best actions and activities. And I think alienation and cynicism around change is like a real barrier to actually yeah. making change. Yeah. And you have talked so much about your reliance on faith to keep you going. And in our crew, you're lovingly known as PASA. <laughs> <laughs> That's because y'all make always make me say grace before the meal. <laughs> So we need we need a little shepherding right now. I mean, how do we reconcile the need for faith and spiritual community while also addressing the ways that some of our faith-based communities are failing us? I mean, is change around the corner for them too? I mean, prayerfully, right? I look at the leadership of people like Candace Bimbo and um, Nichelle Goodry, who runs the Sisters Chapel at Spelman College, people like Reverend Tracy Blackman out of the UCC Church, uh, people like Reverend Starsky, right? I just joined the Action Council at Children's Defense Fund under his leadership because I fully believe in his vision. And so I look at folks like that and know that there are always righteous dissenters, even in the house of the Lord, especially in the house of the Lord, who bring us back to the center. Mm -hmm. And I say that because, you know, the first Bible I ever got had all black and brown people in it. Mm. I didn't see white Jesus until I was maybe like a preteen or a teenager. And I was I was like, who? <laughs> <laughs> who is on the wall? Because that who ain't, is? is who is that? Like, that ain't him. I don't mm -hmm. know why this Jesus looks like, you know, I don't mm -hmm. know. Michael Bolton. An, an action, yeah, Michael Bolton, an action movie star from the 80s. Like, I don't understand this at all. What is going on? Um, but part of the gratitude I have for my parents is that they helped me understand the wisdom of who we believe to be the true and living God as not exclusive, but as inherently inclusive, as inherently radical, and as inherently just, right? Mm -hmm. Which means a couple of things for my worldview. One, it means that none of us have any excuse to use Jesus to exclude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this idea that Jesus is used to reject is antithetical to the example of his life, right? I mean, you have to look no further than the Beatitudes, than who he hung out with, than where he spent his time. You know, you have no further to look than the religious institutions that he intentionally rejected um, to understand that exclusion was never the gospel. Mm. You also can look very closely at the historical context of the time to watch a brown man with woolly hair who was a refugee who was executed by the state to understand the critique, the biblical critique, of what it means to give oneself over to country and state above all else. And so it's just like never how I ingested or understood my faith to be. Yeah. It was always about freedom. It was always about creating heaven on earth for the most oppressed and marginalized among us. It was always about understanding these as tools for our liberation um, you know, as James Cone and, and, you know, womanist scholars and so many others really taught us to understand. So I think for me, I am always trying to be thoughtful about how I am perpetuating 
the real gospel and not the religiosity that, yes, I have been brought up into, right? And how I am always extending the same eye of humanity that Christ extends towards me. So for me, if you are a person of faith, if you are a person of a faith that is different than mine, if you are not a person of faith, you are no less human. And to be very clear, you are no less worthy of liberation, Mm. right? And because this is the tool that I use to hold me up, I see hope in it. I see a divine justice that I do truly believe is promised, even if I don't live to see it. Mm. I see a reason to keep going. And I see a promise of a future that can be reconciled if we decide that it's possible. And so for me, my faith gives me the backbone, right? It it helps me to keep going in the damnedest of times. And it actually serves to me as the reminder of why closing the doors of the church is never an option. What's the biggest lesson that you've learned in the last year? Oh, uh, Lord. Woo. <laughs> you just got hot in here. Um, <laughs> you know, I really think that the biggest lesson, hmm, the, the, the biggest lessons for me have been wrapped up in this idea that we all had a purpose before anyone had an opinion. Hmm. And I say that Because, I mean, you know, we get on these panels and television shows and we write our books and a lot of us share ideals and rhetoric about certain things, especially about the fact that there is genuinely a role for all of us in the work. And that role won't always be popular. It won't always be understood. It won't always be celebrated. In fact, if it's celebrated too much, you may want (laughs) to sit and examine exactly what you're doing. Come on. And still... There is so much potential and necessity, I would really say, for the role to evolve. My politics have evolved a lot over the last two years. Things that I thought would work, and we gave time to let them work that didn't work. I said, okay, I need to go back to the drawing board, right? In terms of what I believe about what I will put my stamp on, about what I will lend my credibility to. And not only is that okay, that is necessary. Mm-hmm. You look at the journeys of our greatest leaders, whether they were the loudest ones or the most quiet ones, it is in their evolution that they set us more free, mm-hmm. right? It is in Malcolm going through all of those stages of discovery and learning and unlearning and relearning and learning more that set me free to say, I can do the same. And I think that there's a tendency for us to want to cement the people that we see in big P public, right, out in the world, or little P public, right, just in our own social interactions or parasocial relationships. There's a desire for us to cement them into who they were when we met them, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So they'll look at somebody like me or you and say, why are you doing that media thing? I thought you were some, I thought you were always out in these streets. Well, that may be who I was when you met me. That's not who I've always been. (laughs) That doesn't say anything about who I was before you met me and who I was destined to be after you met me, right? right. Um, There are folks who 
we'll look at, you know, there there are stuff that I've <laughs> looked at that I wrote and I was like, I don't actually believe that anymore. Mm-hmm. So I'd be like, when somebody tweets it, I'm like, no, don't tweet that. I don't, I don't think that anymore. No, please don't tag me in that. But actually, it's okay that you tag me in that because then when you read the thing that I wrote a year later or two years later or whatever, hopefully you will find in it the same permission that I feel like I was granted from so many of my heroes, right? And the people that I've read to evolve, to be okay saying, I thought it was going to be one way and it's actually a different way. Um, We are all made better by that. I have certainly been made better by that. It has transformed what my community looks like. It has transformed certainly what my politics have looked like. It has transformed though my ability to make a contribution. And I think that in the last year and a half or so, I spent much more time making really quiet contributions. As I continue to sort through exactly how I want to make my point, right? Um, and exactly what point I want to make. And that that's actually a, 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 a beautiful, beautiful space to be in. I love that. You know, you preempted my next question, which was going to be, what's something that you've changed your mind about in the last year? Yeah, yeah I, um, it's been a gradual process, so I wouldn't say it's all happened in the last year. Okay. I think especially as I started to get more involved in policing and police violence specifically, I always understood the flaws to be deeply systemic. I always understood the system to be operating as it was designed. But I think I still held out hope that there could be changes within a fundamentally flawed system that would result in more more positive outcomes than were actually possible. And now I'm just like, you got to uproot the whole thing. And I've transitioned my thinking about that in multiple sectors, in policing, in education. Like there are just places where I have come to discover after working in them, to be really clear, right? Like this, I didn't wake up one morning and say like, oh, I think I changed my mind. Like, no, this was like after reading the studies and being in the struggle. And literally when I was on Obama's commission, like hearing the testimonies and being in community and tussling and wrestling with all of this stuff and with education, working in that space for over 10 years and realizing how the time and attention and resources paid to reforming fundamentally flawed systems is actually wasted time and resources and attention. Because if we can get radical about our intentions, then the way that we expend our resources will look different. Mm. Our work will will actually fit our aspirations much more clearly. And I'm, I'm really grateful, like, to the people from far away and from up close who have pushed me and challenged me and given me space to wrestle with all of that. You are one of those people, right? That that gave me space to say, you know what? I actually am, I'm realizing that I want to spend my energy differently. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that all of the work that I've done in the past is for naught or that the relationships that I've built in the past are for naught. In fact, those are places where I sometimes have an open door that other folks don't have to come in and you know, That's right. bring a new idea, plant a new seed. You know what I'm saying? I do. Um, come in and be a little um, lovingly subversive, shall That's we say. Right. That's right. So it's it's all in the learning. Nelson Mandela says, I never lose. I either win or I learn. Mm. Um, and I've had some wins and I've had a whole lot of lessons. And I, I feel grateful that I've been able to metastasize some of those lessons, especially 
in the quietness of the last year. And just like that, it's time for our weekly roundup of all the things Lady just ain't going to do this week. Number one, supply chain delays. But what about the workers? So in today's episode of Capitalism is a Motherfucker, the word out on the street is that everything is all jammed up because of the pandemic. You may have noticed that it's harder to get an Uber or a Lyft or that you order shit on Amazon and it's really not on demand. You might have noticed that you're trying to cop some shit and it comes in a month rather than a few days later. Well, here's what you should read between the lines to understand from this. The holidays are coming and people are about to buy a lot of shit. And there aren't enough people who are willing to work for shit wages and even worse conditions. And because we've allowed these corporations to wrongly classify workers as independent contractors, Rather than salaried employees with benefits and protections and shit, it's creating a shortage of labor that's fucking with the demand for commodities. So now the Biden administration is trying to negotiate with workers to basically keep shit open around the clock so stuff can get bought, shipped and delivered. And we ain't really dealt with the ongoing privatization of the fucking postal service. All this goes to show when you cut corners enough, eventually, you ain't got enough paper to really do shit with. This might be a good time to make some demands of these corporations about workers' rights, but you ain't heard that from me. And at the end of the day, we gonna keep fucking this up until we do right by the people who make the economy run. So there's that on that. Other things Lady Just Ain't Gonna Do this week is go from pandemic to endemic. So our friend Dr. Fauci is out here telling us what we need to hear. The Rona ain't going nowhere, child. Let's break these terms down for a minute because I also was like, what the fuck? What does that mean? So endemic means something that belongs to a particular place or region. Kind of like malaria is endemic to Africa. The Rona finna be endemic to the globe, which basically means there's no end in sight. There's no herd immunity that might be reached anytime soon. In other words, Rona might lay down for a disco nap every now and then, but this is something we're going to be dealing with for a long time. Kind of like the flu, except this shit is mutating and making more cousins because America is a free country and still too many people out here don't want to infringe upon their freedoms by wearing a mask and getting fucking vaccinated. So this thing going to be around for a long ass time. Other things we ain't going to do this week is fucking cape for Dave Chappelle. I am so sick of this shit. I just have to say it. I'm going to go on and refer you to a great article that Kenyon Farrow wrote this week about how Dave Chappelle is far from a free thinker. Instead, he's basically a casualty of a right wing smear campaign that's old and designed to leverage black communities against expanded rights for LGBT communities. Now, what gets on my nerves about all this, besides all the shit I said last week, is at the end of the day, this motherfucker gets to be loud and wrong and niggas start talking about PC culture, which is really just some nonsense meant to substitute for, I don't want to acknowledge that I'm not the center of the fucking universe. And really, it's these same motherfuckers that call the girls that R. Kelly terrorized fast and the same motherfuckers that try to justify R. Kelly by being like, well, what about Harvey Weinstein or Woody Allen? I am so fucking tired of you people. 
Y'all are so transparent. And yes, I'm talking about you, Damon Wayans. And yes, I'm talking about you, Kevin Hart. My list of faves is growing smaller and smaller because y'all sound so fucking stupid. I just can't. Meanwhile, people are fucking being murdered. But go off, especially about Black Lives Matter. I cannot fucking stand y'all. I swear before the Lord. And that's for all y'all, even the ones I used to fuck with. That's a fact. Let's move on to things that lady wants more of this week, though, because y'all ain't finna raise my motherfucking blood pressure. Number one, all the scorched earth that Democrats are getting served with this week related to how they are or are not using their power. Now, I feel like set fire to the shit because somebody got to do something to get the attention of this Democratic Party. This week, all over the news was how the Democrats got us fucked up when it comes to moving this agenda to bring some real relief to real people. Now, listen, this is not a fuck the Democratic Party announcement, although I've been prone to say that a few times. But it is a story about power. Democrats have power in the House, in the Senate, even though it's slim, and they have the whole last White House. And trust me, when Republicans had this shit, they were rolling back and cutting off and handling business because they were clear, clear, clear that as long as they had power, they were going to use it. Everybody else be damned. Now, I need to feel that same kind of energy from Democrats. So yes, 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 I am here for this 100 percent. There's a lot at stake here. And one thing in particular is, oh, you know, democracy. If Republicans gain control again, they are going to do their best to dismantle the fucking government and make it a private corporation. This isn't hyperbole, people. This is exactly what they spent the last four years doing before they were blissfully interrupted by black voters and a multiracial coalition that said, uh, nah, bro, we ain't getting down like that. Democrats need to match that 2020 energy with some we have governing power energy and get some motherfucking shit done. Now, COVID relief was just the beginning and that shit is still unfinished. But there is no good reason on God's green earth that y'all ain't made life hard for Joe Manchin or Kristen Cinema for their refusal to get on the fucking train. Now, if them motherfuckers want to be Republicans, so be it and Godspeed. But if you finna roll with this team, you finna do these things. Anywho, y'all earned that shit and we've been telling you this shit for a long time now, so don't fuck this up. <laughs> Other things Lady Loves this week, port truckers in California winning a major $30 million settlement for wage theft. So shout out to the port truckers and the Teamsters for winning a major $30 million settlement for wage theft this week. Basically, XPO Logistics, which is one of the world's largest trucking companies, agreed to pay $30 million to settle a whole bunch of class action lawsuits filed by hundreds of drivers who said they earned less than minimum wage for delivering stuff from major retailers. Now, apparently, the company failed to pay legal wages. They failed to pay them for missed meal and rest periods, and they didn't reimburse them for business expenses or waiting time penalties. This is the shit that happens when you misclassify workers as independent contractors rather than full-time employees. Now, workers are losing money as they wait in lines for hours at the ports to deliver goods. This is time they would be paid for if they were employees, but these corporate assholes expect them to do it for free. We love to see settlements like this. Even though it doesn't force the company to reclassify those workers, it might make them think twice about continuing to skirt the rules. 30 million ain't no chump change, honey.
tell me about one project that you're working on that you're really excited about yeah. and tell people how they can follow you on the socials. So I'm going to talk about my book partially because it will hold me accountable for finishing these last <laughs> few edits and getting yes. it out the door. Yes. Um, yes. You know, I, I I started this book journey in 2018 and the world has changed so much then. So the editing has also looked like some rewriting and some reanalyzing and some reflecting on my own evolution and trying to put that on the page. But um, it's called We Are Like Those Who Dream. It actually comes out of a song. Um where the people are essentially talking about coming through the fire and mm. and um, but being people who were willing to dream a different world and then being able to access it. Um, and it is a combination of speeches that I have curated from Black women throughout history, folks from Maria W. Stewart all the way in the, you know, the mid-1800s to um, some of our uh, young geniuses of today. And uh, I've mixed those with personal essays for myself where I've reflected on those speeches in my own evolution, I would say around 2014, 2015, a lot of those texts, a lot of those speeches, a lot of that oration really became like a Bible to me. They became a constant source of wisdom um, and a fount of bravery that I would just continue to pull on. And I just always feel like the wisdom of Black women is what the world needs. Um, and so I'm just trying to give folks a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. um, and give them the space to think through what it means for them by inviting them into what it means for me. Mm, and so that is what I'm working on. You can look out for that next year. Um, and then I am at Miss Pacchetti on all of the socials. Excellent. By all of the socials, I specifically mean Twitter and Instagram. There we go. <laughs> I don't know how to TikTok. Now I'd be looking at the TikToks, but I can't make a TikTok. So hey. don't try to find me on TikTok. But hey. Instagram and Twitter, <laughs> I'm at Miss Becky. <laughs> we all have a lane, my friend. And I feel you. TikTok is not my lane, but I appreciate those for who Listen, it they is. got talent. Okay, there's Hollywood level talent. Kill I hope it. they all make it big. <laughs> we loved having you, Brittany. We'll have to have you back again. Thank you so Absolutely. much for joining us. So that's it for Lady Don't Take No. But I will be back here every single Friday morning to accompany you where there's a chance you might be commuting again. We appreciate you joining us and let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what's on your mind. Tell us what you like and tell us what you ain't gonna take no more of. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. On Facebook, we're at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. We post ways to do something about the things you hear on this show all over our social media. So if we got you amped up today, check out the socials to find out how you can take action. And let's give a special shout out to Jahari Farrar for making sure that the people get what we need from the socials. We appreciate you. Please subscribe and write us a review and let the people know what you've heard here today. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our incredible theme is by Latirix, and this pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. And I am your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, pay your workers and classify them correctly, and maybe you wouldn't have all these damn delays and whatnot. Stop fucking caping for Dave Chappelle because the devil don't need no fucking help. And keep holding Democrats' feet to the fire because there's a lot at stake. That's right. I said it because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no shit and sis don't respect the sister. Walk around like a woman is. She won't speak less it's something worse saying don't play. The girl take herself so seriously. People stare curiously.
got a natural way her hips way furious little luxurious carries herself like love y'all